When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 225, and we are recording on March 31st. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Hello. From our, our separate quarantined yes. areas. Yep. <laughs> Virginia just like officially, I don't even know what the, closed yesterday. The governor put us on a, a stay at home or a shelter in place or a shelter, whatever. I don't yeah. know. So, I mean, it's not that different from what we were already doing. So I'm still, I'm just here. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we've been on stay at home for a week. And I think the biggest difference is what businesses are open versus not open. Right. Uh, Um, So there's that. And yeah, it's been interesting to see how things have changed, Uh, which is to say a little bit, but not that much. But also mentally, it's very weird. So, you know. Yes, it's different. It's very different mentally. Yeah. I'm discovering really interesting things about Virginia. Like, when he announced the stay-at-home order, it specifically excluded fishing. And then I learned that, like, fishing is protected by the constitution of the state. So he had to include freedoms for, like, people to go fishing. (laughs) Which, you know, makes sense. We have the Chesapeake Bay. and That's fascinating. Yeah, it's like a lot of livelihoods in the state are, are based on fishing. But, like, it also covers people who just want to go fishing outside. Right. Right. So what? It's just really interesting. Virginia, what (laughs) even are you? Anyway, so that's what we're doing here. Um, So how the show works, as I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. You can send us your requests for personalized reading recommendations to getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can leave them in the uh, form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive and or, which I guess this is time sensitive, but if you're asking us something about like what to read while you are quarantined or self-isolated, please put that in big, bold letters if you're using the form in the first line or in the subject line if you're emailing us so that we can get to it on time. We're getting a lot of questions about what to read um, during the pandemic. So I would like, we would like to answer all of those, you know, while it's still happening. Um, So, you know, bold headlines. So we see them. Thank you very much. Um, Related, uh, the site Book Riot is doing coverage of what's happening in the book world uh, because of COVID-19. So like, you know, Barnes and Noble closing, um, publishing dates of various books being pushed back, things like that, things that are relevant to readers that are happening because of what's going on in the world right now. So if you would like to keep up with all of that, we have a big headline on the site that is collecting, aggregating all of that news at once. So you could just go to bookriot.com and click the headline. It says COVID-19 updates in the bookish world or something like that. Um, So that is still up and will remain up until we, you know, are done, basically until we're out of this. Um, So we have a few items of feedback. Let's see. Stephanie says, I have a recommendation for the listener on the March 19th episode who was looking for books about classical music. My recommendation is The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century by Alex Ross. It's a narrative nonfiction book about 20th century classical music accessible to both musicians and non-musicians. So that's pretty cool. Let's see. Laura also has a recommendation. For Eric, who asked for classical mu- uh, music-related recs, she recommends M.T. Anderson's Symphony, Symphony for the City of the Dead, which is about Dmitry Shostakovich. Um, also, there's a great podcast called Classical Breakdown, produced by WETA, which is the D.C. classical public radio station. One more from Summer, who has a book for the listener asking for books about pandemics, and she recommends The Murder... Nope, not Murder. That's wrong. <laughs> the Murmur of Bees. <laughs> a much better title, Murmur. <laughs> the Murmur of Bees... Much Chiller by Sofia Segovia, (laughs) set in Mexico during the influenza epidemic of 1918. There's an interesting fantastical element with one of the characters who talks with the bees that protect him. Okay, so Jen's going to read our first question. We'll talk about our first sponsor, and then away we will go. I'm trying to decide if my interest in any books about bees outweighs my desire to not read about pandemic literature. (laughs) But like, I might have to make an exception for that one. Thank you, Summer. Maybe just put it on your TBR and read it in like October. Yeah, there you go. 
All right. Our first question is from Haley, who says, I'm looking for a recommendation to keep me in completely engrossed. The past two weeks have left me stressed and anxious, so a book to distract my thoughts would be amazing. I haven't had one of those stay up reading a book until 4 a.m. nights in years. I really want something to grip my attention from the beginning to the very end. I would prefer something that isn't super high fantasy, but other than that, I'll read just about anything. All right, before we dig into those, let's do our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Amanda, what do you have for engrossing 4am reads? All right, I picked the last book that I stayed up way too late reading. um, And it's My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell, which I will say off the jump comes with a trigger warning for sexual abuse of children. The entire book is about that. So like there is no skipping pages. That's what the whole book is about. So um, it sounds, I am super sensitive, like I am such a weenie about books where bad things happen to kids, but for some reason, probably the controversy, I picked this up because it was such a controversial book and everybody was talking about it and that like my, my curiosity outweighed my like, oh no, bad things happen to children. Um, so I picked it up and immediately could tell like, oh, I understand why this is so controversial. So you're going back and forth in time. The main character, Vanessa is 15 from the year 2000. She's sent off to boarding school by her parents and she gets immediately like groomed and abused by her English teacher who is 42. His name is Jacob Strain. Um, and she stays with him or like trapped by him. And it's, it's a very um, Stockholm syndrome-y. Um, she stays with him until she's in her 30s. So you jump back and forth between the year 2000 when she first meets him and he first begins assaulting her to 2017 when she's in her 30s and it's completely failed to launch. Like her entire life is about this relationship with this horrible man. Um, she has like a dead-end job. She's dated other people, but they've not gone anywhere, etc. And then the Me Too movement happens and other students, former students of the teacher start coming forward that that he also abused them. And so she is stuck in this, in her brain, in this like very weird place of she doesn't believe them. Or if she does believe them, she thinks that they must have been asking for it or like all of this because her relationship with him has been so her entire life is defined by it. And she cannot think of him as a villain because then she has to think of herself as a victim. And then what has her entire life like life been for? So it's you're, you're watching her really struggle to justify the things that he did to her. And that is why it is such an uncomfortable read. Like seeing a victim 
so openly and really, really grossly defend her abuser is so uncomfortable. And I could not put it down. I couldn't put it down because, you know, I had this hope through the, the whole reading process, like she's going to come around, right? Like she's she's got to go. If this book ends with her being like, no, he was amazing. And like, that's it. I will write. Um, I'm not going to tell you how it ends because it's a little bit spoilery. Um, but I thought that it was worth it. I thought there was payoff um, in her like emotional and mental life. But the process of getting there for her is rough. And so it's rough for you because, you know, as a reader, like, no, no, you were you were terribly abused. And I think the controversy around the book that it like romanticizes what happens to Vanessa is inaccurate. There is no romance about it, It's which is a tough line to walk, because when she's 15, she feels like it's romantic. And she, you, you can see this 15 year old telling herself that it's romantic. But the narrator really nails that, like, she knows that it wasn't like she's reminiscing. She knows that it wasn't. Um, and some of the lines that she says about it, you're like, oh, no, she gets it. You know, so it's it's really rough, but you won't be able to stop. It's not like people have been comparing it to Lolita and blah, 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 blah. It's nothing like Lolita, um, which does, in my opinion, romanticize abuse. Uh, anyway, totally engrossing. So My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. All the trigger warnings you could possibly put out there. All of them. <laughs> Yeah, um, in a very different direction. <laughs> I picked Gideon the Ninth by Tanzan Muir because it is the wackiest, like, dumps you into the middle of the story. What is going on? I am just along for this ride. What on earth is going to happen next? Because every other page, it's like, what? What is happening now? And I feel like that's the kind of book that, I don't know, for me, it gets me just like totally entranced and like, I have to know what's going to happen next because I don't, I don't know how these pieces fit together yet. Uh, and so, and Gideon the Ninth is deeply that. It is a fantasy, but it's also a little bit sci-fi and it's also a little bit action movie and it's like I you said you didn't want super high fantasy and when I think of high fantasy I think of like medieval swords and you know Tolkien stuff and this is not that this takes place in a universe where people are traveling between planets but also there's necromancy magic and Gideon is not does not have magic Gideon is, has a sword and a really bad attitude and is an orphan being raised on a planet full of like dusty old nuns who have been terrible to her and all she wants is to get off of this planet away from her arch nemesis who's the daughter of like the rulers of this planet uh and you know do her own thing and like go to battle for the empire and like you know get glory you know bestowed upon her head like she wants nothing to do with you know anyone who she's lived with and so she's in the middle of plotting her escape when her arch nemesis Harrow comes to her and foils her escape and is like, by the way, I need a swords person to go with me to become uh, a, like a servant of the emperor. They need necromancers. I'm a necromancer. You have a sword. Like, if you do this, I will give you basically whatever you want. And Gideon's like, well, I don't have a choice. Like, <laughs> I have to get off of this planet. Somehow this is how I'm going to do it. And the two of them proceed to be part of like a locked house necromancy murder mystery situation and it just is such a roller coaster there's so many interesting characters there's so many twists and turns in the plot there's so many red herrings you're just like what is happening and i find that very entertaining when it's done well and i do think this is done really well and also gideon is a hilarious narrator she is just she doesn't have any idea what's going on at like basically any point she's just trying to solve problems with her swords and her you know fists like, can she kick it until it goes away? The answer is no. And uh, it's delightful. It's so delightful. It does have, like, a pretty intense ending, fair warning, because it's a first in a series. Uh, so, you know, gird yourself a little bit. But I just, I thought it was so much fun. And definitely, like, I could not stop turning the pages. So, again, that's Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. I think I just realized that Gideon the Ninth is, like, a necromancy version of Die Hard. Oh, my God. You are... Like, they're trapped in that building. Yeah. And they have to go through weird doors and... Yeah, and, like, Bruce Willis is an everyman yes! who has no idea what's happening. And, like, everyone around him is a little bit smarter, but also not. Oh, my God. You're right, Amanda. You're right. <laughs> yes! You nailed it. Quarantine yeah. brain makes a connection. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Um, So, question two. 
That's from Mariposa, who says, when I was younger, I used to read literature with a capital L, a lot of classics and literary fiction. But during college, as a double major in classics and English, I stopped reading lit fic because I had to read a lot of it for class and started gravitating towards fantasy, sci-fi, and a bit of romance. Now that my time in college is coming to an end and I'm stuck at home taking classes remotely because of COVID, I want to try my hand at getting back into literary fiction. In the past, I've loved A Little Life, The Secret History, The Goldfinch, and The Mothers, to name a few. Books I've read recently and loved were Red, White, and Royal Blue. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Everything China Mayville has ever written, The Broken Earth Trilogy, Daughter of the Forest, among others, and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I feel like I've been so apart from literary fiction for so long, I'm not actually sure what stories in the genre I would be interested in anymore. Any suggestions you could give would be much appreciated. Okay. So I picked Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Avaristo for you, because if you've been out of the world of literary fiction for a while, I think this is a great place to start because it was the winner of the Booker in 2019. um, Margaret Atwood's book, The Testament, was like, The Testaments was a joint winner, but we're going to ignore that because I hate that that happened and it makes me very angry. So we're going to pretend like Girl, Woman, One Other Other was the only winner of the Booker Prize in 2019. Um, And it's totally so deserving of it. And it's got an interesting um, voice situation happening. So it's a collection. It's not a collection. It's a novel. But it is about 12 different, um, mostly women, black women living in the UK, all across the UK, who have interconnected stories and narratives. And it's a little bit experimental, not enough to put off any kind of person who's like not into experimental literature. But if you like the mothers and how the mothers has that chorus element to it, um, I think that you like if you were comfortable with that level of experimentalness, then I think you'd be fine with what's happening in Girl, Woman, Other. That she uses a little bit of like weird punctuation or like lacks of punctuation, but it wasn't anything that interfered with my ability to understand what was going on at any time. Um, And it is so fast-paced and funny. I love interconnected stories um, where, you know, the side character in chapter one becomes the main character in chapter two and etc. There's a lot of twists and turns where you find out how some of the characters are connected, some of them in really surprising ways. Um, It's about everything. It's about race and class and theater and lesbians and polyamory, which I was not expecting, and parenting (laughs) and just a lot, just a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, And it was... It's so, it feels very, how do I, like energetic, you know, and everyone is sympathetic, which is not the same thing as saying everyone in the book is likable. Um, And she hits on so many really nuanced uh, portrayals of different versions of feminism, because the the person who you meet in the very first chapter, who is kind of the, the main character pull through for all the other connected stories is like an old school kind of radical feminist who came of age in like the 70s and 80s. Um, And then you kind of hang out with her daughter who is in college and her daughter's friends who are much more intersectional and like the clashes that they have with each other about the the direction that feminism is going and all of that kind of stuff. And you can get very easily annoyed with either of them because they're both like very pedantic as like openly professed feminists, including myself, can often be. I can often be very pedantic. Um, but like it's told with such compassion and love and like joy and energy that you're like, oh, just work it out. Everybody hug. I just loved it so much. It totally deserved to be the sole winner of the Booker Prize, which in the alternate universe of my brain is what happened. So that's Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Huge cosign to everything Amanda <laughs> just said. <laughs> just all of it. All of it cosigned. Uh, I picked for you Disoriental by Nigar Javadi, uh, translated by Tina Cover, And I picked it because your, you know, list of things that you've liked say to me that you are down for a slow burn. And I love Disoriental so much. It is, however, a slow burn because of the way it's told. So it's the story of a young woman who uh, had to flee Iran along with her family at the age of 10 um, and go to France because of the revolution and upheaval there. And now she's 25 and she's like got a new life and she's working on having a child with her partner. And like she's also now as a future mom struggling to come to grips with her own childhood and also the stories like her family history, the stories that her family tells. And so the novel alternates between Kimia at age 25, Kimia at the age of 10 when they have to leave Iran, and then also these excursions into the lives of her, you know, great, 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 et cetera, um, family members and her parents. So you're you're hopping around in time and space. Uh, and and so but it all weaves together really beautifully. And the voice is so strong and so beautiful. The writing is amazing. This is one of those books where, you know, sometimes 
books feel translated to me. And this did not at all mm. feel translated. Like it just flows so beautifully. And I think it's just a story that, you know, for so many reasons, there's not much like it out there. It really is kind of singular in my last, like, let's call it five years of reading life. Uh, and yeah, cannot say enough good things about it. And I think that you will really get sucked into it as well. So again, that's Disoriental by Negar Javadi, uh, translated by Tina Cover. All right, next question is from Kate, who says, Due to the recent quarantines, I've had to cancel a couple of my upcoming trips, and I'm pretty bummed about it. I was hoping you could recommend some travel-ish books that will make me feel wanderlust, even when I'm self-quarantining. Amanda, what you got? Okay, I picked How to Be a Family by Dan Coyce, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I forgot to look it up, which I did last week, too. Sorry. Y'all know. It's quarantine brain. So I picked this because he goes a lot of places, which I think will help scratch kind of that itch. So Dan was a journalist, is a journalist, living in the D.C. suburbs in Virginia, I think in Alexandria, um, had two kids who were preteens, two daughters, and his wife. And they realized that, like, they were, you know, the thing that we're we all realize at some point, like, we're overscheduled, we're too busy, we don't like the way that our kids are turning out they're stuck in their phones like we're not spending enough time together etc so they sell they sell up like sell all their stuff take a leave of absences from their jobs and decide to take their kids to different spots throughout the world to see how families and children are raised in these various areas around the world uh to try and see like if there's a, th- a way for them to get out of this rut that they've created for themselves of like busyness and mortgages and distractedness and not seeing, um, not paying enough attention to each other and kind of getting outside of their like East Coast parenting, you know, brain. So he packs up the kids and they go to New Zealand and they spend a few months in New Zealand. Then they spend a few months in the Netherlands, uh, Costa Rica, and then small town Kansas, which is my favorite chapter because is that a foreign country? It is if you're from DC. So that was really interesting. (laughs) Um, And it, It's so fascinating. You know, like there are travel memoirs. I love a travel memoir. I really do. But I think that when you are stuck inside, it's really nice, I think, right now, or helpful, or at least maybe soothing, or maybe just even schadenfreude, to read a book about a parent stuck with their kids in various places of the world. Like they're still traveling, but you can't, if you're, you know, with your family, you're not getting away from them. Like they rent houses and live together for months at a time in wherever they are, in New Zealand, in the Netherlands, et cetera. Um, And they stay long enough to get a real sense for how communities work in these places and to send their kids to school, which is a really fascinating thing. Like the way that um, their oldest daughter, who I think is 12 or 13 when the book opens, has to adjust to like starting a new school every couple of months. She has a really hard time, especially in the Netherlands, because the way that the Dutch do public school and the things they expect of students and like the level of conformity really does not mesh well with this like independent sullen snarky kind of 12 year old um and he also lets his kids write a few interjections into the book so like they write letters their own reflections about what the time was like uh and it's really interesting i think that people or at least if my social media feed is any indication people who are stuck at home with their teenagers or preteens are having a really hard time right now um which has made me wonder like what's wrong with the way that we're raising our kids that they can't be without constant distraction for even a week before they turn on us, you know, and try to like eat us from the inside. Um, and I think that this this book, along with scratching some of that travel uh, wanderlust stuff that we are all probably experiencing right now, might be a good reflection point for like how we want to leave this situation treating each other differently or approaching our lives a little bit differently. So accidental good read for quarantine time. So that's How to Be a Family, The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together by Dan Coyce. Nice. Uh, I picked A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid, which is actually like an 80-page essay. It's not a whole book. But if you're anything like me, you might be having trouble focusing on longer things right now. And so maybe this will uh, be a nice, shorter, um, but still incredibly engaging and actually quite bigger on the inside read. Uh, And (laughs) this was the first thing I ever read by Jamaica Kincaid, actually. And A Small Place is... An essay about the, like, 
it's literally 10 by 12 miles big island in the West Indies where she grew up. And it is both a sort of ode to this place where she grew up and how much it meant to her and how, you know, she knows every house on every street and every person on every block, but also what tourism has meant for the town in good but also bad ways. Uh, And, you know, the impact of colonization because it's the British West Indies and So she's going back and forth between, you know, showing you this idyllic setting and what it was like to grow up there and then what it's like to be there as an adult seeing how it's been affected by tourism. And it's so interesting because obviously we all know, you know, the impact that tourism can have on various places. But I don't think I've ever read anything that had this sort of like, very dry sense of humor about, like, there's a lot of snark in this essay, (laughs) which, yeah, exactly. It's great. Um, But also, like, a lot of, you know, real feeling for what it means to be from a place like this and to see it change and develop. And it's not, like, you know, 100% damning, like, it, but it is very conscious of all of these different issues. And it's just, I don't know, it's really interesting. And I think it's changed the way I travel a little bit. I try to be more conscious of how I'm contributing and, like, what Mm. ways I cannot contribute to that kind of thing. I mean, there's only so much you can do if you're going to travel, especially to places that are very small and that, you know, have limited resources to begin with. But it's a really interesting view. And Kincaid is such a good writer. Oh, my God. So good. So, yeah, it's very, I think it's very worth reading. And it will make you feel like you are there. It absolutely will make you feel like you're right there. So, again, it's A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid. Okay, our next question is from Monica, who says, I'm starting a new book club, and we are wanting to read a historical queer book as our first read, historical really meaning from whenever. Do you have any suggestions? I'm already aware of Tipping the Velvet, The Color Purple, Stone Butch Blues, Fingersmith, Giovanni's Room, and A Little Life. Okay, I picked The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, which comes with a trigger warning for slavery and associated violence and rape. It is brutal so like if you've got really sensitive readers in your book club maybe give this one a miss but if not or if you can handle it like i think it's totally worth reading so this is a murder mystery and it's not a whodunit it's a it well it kind of is but it so franny langton is the main character she's a former slave uh she lives in london now uh with a an eminent scientist and his wife and they she is accused of murdering them. So George is the scientist. His wife is French. Her name is Marguerite. And uh, when the book opens, she's been arrested. She's being held in the Old Bailey and she's on trial. No one doubts her guilt and no one doubts that she's going to hang, including Franny. And so she is reminiscing um, about how she got there, both her time as a slave in a Jamaican sugar plantation and how she came over to London. And that process is really um, also very brutal, where she was made to serve her her you know the person who enslaved her in jamaica in his like science experiments and his connection as a scientist with george is how she ends up in london with him she follows him to london and is left there so um the fact that i'm recommending this for your question is kind of a spoiler but but not really um she has a romantic relationship with marguerite with the her employer's wife that um becomes very obsessive and like very codependent um they're both stuck where they are uh in that house and neither of them have any hope for escape neither of them are happy but they find you know some comfort together and so when she when franny wakes up out of like a blackout covered in marguerite's blood and accused of murdering her she's like that that can't be possible like I loved her that cannot be possible um but she can't she's not going to say that um and there is again like I said there's no doubt that she is guilty to there's no doubt in in like the judge the jury everyone around all of London like the world assumes that she's guilty for obvious reasons um Marguerite is white that's the obvious reason <laughs> um and she's a former slave and like all of this so it's so like She's not a great character. Like, she's not... I, I mean, she's a really well-written character, but she's not a great person. Like, Franny herself is a is a really stubborn and violent um, and, like, vindictive character. But 
in ways that you entirely like understand and sympathize with. Um, and so her, she will not present any defense. She won't defend herself. She, she doesn't remember how she got to like Marguerite's room. Um, she's not trying to remember, like she's trying to block all that out and she's just letting what's happening to her happen. Um, so it's kind of a whodunit. Like, did she actually kill these two people? Um, and if so, why? And if not, like, who else could possibly have? Because there was no one else in the house. Um, and also, how is it connected to her time as an enslaved person in Jamaica? So there's a lot going on. It's very, you know, layered and nuanced and tough, but totally worth it. Um, so that's The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. I picked Orlando by Virginia Woolf because, like, hello, with one <laughs> of the sort of original to uh, European literature queer historical novels that's actually, like, good about <laughs> queer. Like, it actually, like, celebrates queerness as opposed to it being some kind of, like, terrible cautionary tale. Uh, and Orlando is, oh my gosh, this book is so much fun. It is about... Orlando, who starts off as a young nobleman in Elizabethan England. And by the end of the novel, Orlando is a woman in, you know, the early 1900s um, fighting for suffrage for women. And you, the story is, you know, how does Orlando get from one of those places to the other? And it is so funny and so interesting and such an odd little book because it is, you know, this character is not quite immortal, but extremely long lived, has all kinds of different relationships and, you know, romances and, you know, family connections and comes in and out of different historical moments and has so much to say about everything going on around them. And it is just... It's so much fun. And it's such a good book to discuss, I think, with a book club because everybody's going to have their own favorite sections and thinking about like what it is that you love about those sections and, you know, what Wolf is doing here. And one of my favorite things about this book is that uh, Virginia Woolf sort of wrote it for her uh, lover, Vita Sackville West. And there's pictures of Orlando in the book that are like, Vita Sackville West in, you know, costume, which is just amazing. Like, there, the, you should do a little research before book club on the history of Wolf and Vita Sackville West, because I think it will really help inform the discussion. And it's just so interesting and fascinating. Love it. So again, that's Orlando by Virginia Woolf. And now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and 
gets to appreciate the feisty, foul-mouthed, paint-splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so question five is from Anonymous, who says, Recently, my college shut down for the remainder of the semester due to corona fear, leaving me to take online classes at my parents' house states away from all of my friends during my final semester my senior year. Needless to say, this left me pretty bummed. I don't have a great relationship with my parents, so being here isn't exactly great for my mental health. Do you have any fun books to recommend? I particularly like sci-fi and fantasy. Doesn't necessarily have to be funny or lighthearted. I more want a book that will engross me and make me not think about my life for just a little bit. One caveat, no romance, please. I left for spring break having just started seeing someone, and now with school canceled, we are states apart, and I don't know if slash when we'll see each other again. So that relationship is basically done. So now the thought of romance makes me really sad. Oh, Anonymous, I just want to like elbow bump you from afar. <laughs> from a safe distance. Yeah, yeah, I just, I feel for you. This is this is not a great way to end your college experience. And I'm sorry that's happening to you. Uh, Amanda, what you got? I picked A Winter's Promise by Christelle Dabos, and it's translated by Hildegard Sorrel from French. This is a fantasy um, YA novel that, so I will say the first book has no romance in it, but I, it is a trilogy, or no, I think there's four actually, and I don't know about the others. Um, so I can't promise that there's no romance in the series, but there's no romance in the first one. It's kind of the opposite of romance. She really hates this dude that she's stuck with. Anyway, so um, in this like universe, the uh, something called The Rupture happened, where the world was broken up into different floating celestial islands that, that are called arcs. And the main character's name is Ophelia. She lives in, on an arc called Anima. And every arc has its own like mystical, magical, kind of supernatural thing going on. And in hers, objects have souls, inanimate objects. And she is a librarian and her job, and they call it an animist, and her job is to catalog the soul and the history of an object. So she can touch it. If she touches an object with her bare hands, she can feel and intuit the history of it and like how it came to be where it is, the history of the people who owned whatever that thing is, etc. She's really good at this. Um, and wants to take over um, doing this from this like job from her uncle who's like the head person on the arc who is like the head animist but she has been promised by her family to another arc of, of the dragon clan his name is thorn and her fiance comes to get her and she has to like follow him to his arc which is called the pole um it's very cold and scary and weird and like nothing like her kind of very cozy uh home and they don't get along her fiance is terrible he's um really like sullen and silent he obviously resents having to get married as does she and so he's not nice to her <laughs> he's not nice to her and when he gets when he brings her to his home he kind of leaves her there and then goes on about his business out of town and so she's stuck in this house with his family and she can't tell like she she doesn't know if they're friend or foe. She's obviously been dropped into the middle of some really bizarre um, and unknown political intrigue. Um, she doesn't know if she's like if she she's not allowed to go outside, but she does sneak out a few times and like it doesn't always end well. Um, so it feels appropriate for a time of self-isolation to be, maybe be reading about um, a woman who is stuck someplace that she if she leaves, God only knows what's going to happen to her. Um, but she's super, super smart and also has an additional power of being able to go place to place through mirrors so she can like travel where she wants to by dumping her body into a mirror it's really strange and interesting to read it has that kind of dark materials um atmosphere like there's magic and it's winter like you expect a polar bear to come around the corner sometimes <laughs> several polar bears do come around the corner um political intrigue a little bit of like a religious weirdness like it feels very cozy in that way with like danger around every corner um again i don't know if ophelia and her fiance end up liking each other at some other point because I've only read the first one but in the first one they they end um, they end up in like a respectable detente you know like I won't murder you in your bed if you don't murder me in my bed and like that's where we're gonna leave it and that's how the first book ends so I don't know but it's very engrossing and if you want to read something that you know takes you to literally another world I think this is a good one so that's A Winter's Promise by Christelle Davos. I picked Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey for you, both because there are a bunch of books in the series if you get hooked, and there's the TV show. Like, a lot of quarantine time can be spent <laughs> upon this series if you like it. Um, there is a, like, will-they-won't-they they situation, but it's very, like, B or C plot. It has no effect on the actual outcome of the 
you know, major plot itself. And I hopefully it's not like like this is not a romance novel. Like there's just like a little bit of, you know, some people are maybe going to sleep together or maybe not, but we'll see. Um, But the vaster point of this book is like aliens and political intrigue and like Earth versus Mars. And it's like big, sweeping, epic, you know, space battles and that kind of thing. So it is, I think, deeply distracting. Also super weird, FYI, (laughs) the book opens with some body horror, and there are sequences towards the end where, like, limbs and skin are not where they should be, and, like, things are kind of gross. It's like, ugh. Like, and I'm very sensitive to that. I really don't like it. (laughs) But I will say that once I, like, steeled myself to get through the opening chapter, it got much better. And by the time we got back to it, I was like, okay, I can, like, I can hang with this for just long enough and or skim very quickly through these sections and get to the rest of it. Um, So it is about, uh, there's sort of two main threads. One is a mining ship that is captained by, you know, a good old guy, very like sort of lovely captain who takes care of his people and there's lots of found family loyalty feelings and they uh, happen upon a ship in distress and then everything blows up like literally and they are sort of on the run because they know a thing that they shouldn't but like what do they actually know they're not even sure And then elsewhere, there is a detective who is assigned to look slash actually technically abduct a girl who has, you know, left her parents' sphere of influence and they are very rich and like want her to come back and be part of the family again, whether or not she wants to. Um, And he is sort of half-assing this job. He's a little bit unhinged, quite frankly, and gets more unhinged as things go along. And you find out at some point that, you know, his quest to find this young woman and then this mining crew's, you know, conspiracy that they've stumbled upon are actually connected and how are they connected and what does it mean for literally the whole solar system it's all like i said very big and sweeping and you know people are extremely unhinged there's a lot of violence but i found it very escapist um especially because you know these problems are not our problems although there is like a sort of alien virus situation happening but it's you know just FYI. Just FYI. I read this before the pandemic. Just I, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I wonder if that would be a little too close to home. But you can judge for yourself. So again, that's Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. All right. Question six is from Erica, who says, I'm going to Italy late April and early May and was hoping for some book recommendations to get me pumped for my trip. We're staying in Rome and the Amalfi Coast. I'm open to any suggestions, whether it be fiction, any genre or YA is okay too, that take place in these areas or some nonfiction to learn about the history, art, culture, and food. So this is probably not happening. (laughs) Like I picked this question because it's time sensitive, but I'm sure that Erica, you are not going to Italy. And for that, I am really sorry. But we still wanted to answer you because maybe some literary travel would be up your alley. Um, So I picked The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, which is a YA novel. And I picked this because it does take place a lot in Italy. I think um, it's Venice specifically, but also the main characters are going on a grand tour of Europe. So if you are feeling, you know, which I'm sure you are, bummed that you can't travel right now and that your trip isn't happening, um, then I think this might like scratch a little bit of those itches for you. So it takes place in the 1800s and it's the main character's name is Monty, Henry Montague, Monty. Um, and he is, a <laughs> yes, you know, um, I think he's the son of like a duke or some kind of highfalutin person and he's so he's a gentleman he's like bred to be a gentleman he's being sent to the finest boarding schools in england and all of that but he is kind of a rogue or a rake or whichever both both i don't really know the difference actually now that i'm saying that <laughs> he's a roguish rake a rakish rogue and at 17 he is like not living up to the standards that his father wants him to be living up to and so his father is about to cut him off like his dad has had enough um his dad is also a homophobe like monty is bisexual and his dad does not approve of that but he is also kind of a jerk like monty spends a lot of money at gambling halls he's constantly drinking like all right you know 
He's he's not a stand-up citizen, if you will. And so his dad is like, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm not sending you to boarding school anymore. I'm going to send you on a grand tour of Europe with um, his best friend, Percy, and with his sister, Felicity. The catch is that you have to go with your tutor, who's going to watch every move you make. And if I hear anything about how you've been partying or sleeping with inappropriate people or in any way, like, you know, sullying my good name, um, I'm going to cut you off. And that's going to be the end of that. So he's kind of... I mean, how privileged. Like, he's he's stuck going on a grand tour of Europe and, like, is serious so about it. He's, like, heartbroken that he has to go on this grand tour. Um, but it turns out to be, like, a hilarious romp. So his sister Felicity, who he's not super close to, but doesn't, and, like, not an enemy of by any means, but doesn't know very well and, like, not excited about traveling Europe with her, turns out to be awesome. She's, like, a complete blue stocking proto-feminist who really likes to, um, like, read anatomy textbooks and stuff like that. She's super weird. And Monty has a crush on his best friend, on Percy. And Percy, you know, he spends a little bit of time, like, flirting with Percy and, like, seeing what's going to happen with Percy while they're in Paris and in Rome and in Venice and all of this kind of stuff. Um, And there are several scenes which I really appreciated where Percy, who is not white, has to bring Monty down a peck or two. Like, you can get in this kind of trouble because you can afford to. If I get in this kind of trouble, terrible things will happen to me. So Monty's, like, learning some lessons along the way. Um, And then they get, he makes some, like, a dumb decision in Rome at a party or in France, I think, at a party and gets involved in, like, this horrible political plot. They have to go in the run. or pirates it's great it's it's a super fun super fun romp um and i think very distracting from not being able to go on your trip while also hitting a lot of the spots that you were probably going to see so that's the gentleman's guide to vice and virtue by Mackenzie lee i went the nonfiction route i picked galileo's daughter by Deva sobel and this is the thing i'm going to do now this one comes with a trigger warning for the bubonic plague <laughs> oh gosh maybe you don't want to read it right now but what is our life you know yeah exactly <laughs> Um, but Davis Sobel is an amazing historian. She always picks super interesting things to look into. And this book is so cool because it digs into like science and religion and politics and all of these fascinating aspects of Italian history, all organized around Galileo, obviously, but his daughter, which, you know, I don't think a lot of people know, she uh, was... Uh, illegitimate. They're, all of his kids were illegitimate. And the oldest um, became a nun. She, you know, went to a convent at 13, but she was near Galileo and she was like his sort of, not muse, but like support. Like she, you know, they wrote letters back and forth and she was a huge influence on him and they had a very close relationship. And so, you know, using that relationship as sort of the crux of this history, you know, Sobel goes into, you know, Galileo's public life and then what it was like for his daughter in this convent. Um, And then, you know, talks about like the Medicis and the papal court and you know, the plague is going on, the Thirty Years' War is going on, and Galileo is trying to, like, be a good Catholic, but also advance science. So there's a ton of different things going on. And it's a really interesting lens to look at through. And you will learn so much about Italy's history during that time period, um, late 1500s into mid 1600s. Um, So I think it'd be super interesting and, you know, give you some insight into that segment of Italian history. So again, that's Galileo's Daughter by Deva Sobel. All right. Our last question is from Jean, who says, looking for a fantasy novel that feels like Lord of the Rings, but has some non-heteronormative romance in it. I love fluff romance and don't mind sex scenes as long as there isn't an eggplant involved. (laughs) LOL. (laughs) I haven't read a good fantasy novel since I was a kid. I liked Aragon, Harry Potter, A Series of Unfortunate Events, and Cirque du Freak. I want something that isn't necessarily YA, though, as I prefer books geared more towards adults. Amanda, what you got? So I picked The Tiger's Order by K. Arsenal Rivera, which is the first book in, I think, a trilogy. And it has a lot of Lord of the Rings um, feel like feeling to me. The overarching story being about an empire um, that has defeated evil and sent it off into its, you know, appropriate place under the ground and away from the humans who live there. Um, except the evil has awoken and is slowly encroaching on the people uh, and the villages and, uh, you know, 
they're not orcs, but they might as well be. They're demons in this situation. Uh, and nobody wants to believe what's happening until it might be too late and they have to, you know, rise up to battle this, this evil again. And the demons in this situation, it is demons, and they are pretty common. And the two main characters are daughters of warriors who were responsible for sending those demons out of the kingdom in the first place. And now they have had their own daughters who have grown up together over time. Um, one of them comes from the Koran people who are like a steppe people, a nomadic steppe people. And one of them is uh, named Shafali, who is the who's going to grow up to be the empress of the empire. And so these two people groups have made a treaty that involves like a kind of complicated exchanging of inheritance through dynasties situation. Um, and as they have been, as they've grown and gotten older and come of age and taken uh, responsibility for their positions and things like that. This evil that has started to invade their kind of border walls and border villages becomes more and more pronounced, and they have to work together to get rid of it. Um, and then there are, you know, three more books. So you, there's not, it's not like a Hobbit situation where like nobody, is, like the main characters that you're following are, you know, like pure and good and just want to farm. That's not what's happening. These are not like people who are without knowledge of what's going on, the main characters, um, and they are very much in power, but they're, they're advisors and the people who live around them really want to deny that this kind of evil is coming together. And so it's not YA, even though some people on Goodreads have classified it as YA, um, but there is a coming of age element. Like you are watching them grow up. And the first book ends when they have gotten to the age that they're going to take, take, like ultimate possession of their their power, their positions of power. And then the other books follow them through their further adulthood. Um, so it's got a lot of just big orc energy <laughs> is what I felt <laughs> about it. Like what is these demons like swarm out of the forest to destroy people? And all the people are like, oh, we thought that was a rumor. Whoops-a-doodle. It felt very much like Sauron would be in on this. So that's The Tiger's Daughter by K. Arsenal Rivera. So my pick also has big orc energy, except for that <laughs> the main character is an orc, which is amazing. <laughs> um, it's The Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood, which is the first in a new series. And this is from my TBR. I am like waiting for my library to get the ebook. But I talked to a bunch of people about it, and they all assured me that it was not only great for this question, but super gay. Uh, <laughs> the main character, there's or the main romance, rather, which is described as, this cracked me up, sweet rather than spicy. So, like, that should give you an idea about, you know, lack of eggplant sex scenes. Um, it's uh, it's between two female characters. And then, like, all of the other characters are apparently also gay. Uh, so delightful. And so the main character, Kasorwe, is an orc. She's also a priestess. And, like, the thing that she has been working towards is that she's going to become a sacrifice to her god on her 14th birthday. But then when that day comes, a wizard offers her a new fate— um, and an offer to become the wizard's personal assassin instead. And then he sends her off on this epic quest to, you know, gain the thing of power. It's a reliquary in this case. Um, and there's like multiple worlds and a big, you know, like meeting interesting people along the way and going through all of these different scenarios and settings and, you know, big epic fantasy quest feels which obviously Lord of the Rings. And I love this idea of an orc main character because, you know, orcs have like the worst rep in <laughs> high fantasy. And I love things that turn them on their heads. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm so excited by the premise of this book and all of the reviews that I've seen and the folks that I've talked to, they're really into it. So I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting for that library hold to come in. And in the meantime, maybe your library already has it and or you can grab a copy online. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it is in our, our collective wheelhouse, as it were. Um, so again, that's The Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood. And that's our show. Huzzah! Hooray! Thank you all so much for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I'm on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's, IRL. And also on Twitter as Jen IRL. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye.